Welcome or welcome back to Criminal Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Jade. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. It's very much appreciated. I hope that you're having a good day, good night, good evening, wherever you're at, and whatever time that you're listening to this. I haven't posted an episode in a while. I know. Sorry. I was on a... I was like, ooh, I'm getting back into the groove of things, and and then life just picked up, and... It, it wasn't for me. It's never for me. But I'm just working with what I've got. So, the last case that we talked about was the Grony family murders. And this week, we're going to be talking about the disappearance of the Millbrook twins. So, let's get started. Danette and Jeanette Millbrook were fraternal twins born on April 2nd, 1974, in Augusta, Georgia. The twins came from a large family. In total, they had eight siblings. They had some older siblings that had already moved out, and some were younger. They were a pretty close family, so everyone knew everyone. They knew all their cousins, aunts, uncles. It was just, they were just in a loving, caring, happy family that they were surrounded by. Danette and Jeanette lived with their mother, Mary Sturgis, who went by Louise. Their father and mother were high school sweethearts, but things didn't turn out as expected, and their father wasn't involved in their life. Danette and Jeanette both experienced minor problems. For instance, they had surgery for a hernia. Danette was on medication for seizures. I, why do I struggle to say that word? Seizures, and she was described as walking bow-legged. The twins were described as pretty quiet for their age, or compared to the rest of the kids, their age. And, you know, with every sibling, there is one sibling that is more outgoing than the other. And Danette was the more outgoing sibling. There was a time when Danette was struggling in school and she had to be enrolled in another school just to get more help and to be able to spend more time doing her schoolwork and understanding it. Because of this, Danette was held back a grade and she had to take a different bus from her sister because they were now going to different schools. One day, Jeanette was seen at the bus stop all by herself when a local girl just started teasing her because she knew that Jeanette was the quieter sister. She wasn't as bold as Danette, so since she didn't see Danette, she thought it was the perfect opportunity. Later on, Danette learned about the bullying that the girl did to Jeanette. She went to her old bus stop with Jeanette and confronted the girl, which turned into a fight that was broken up when a police officer was driving by and wrote down the names of the twins. The twins enjoyed 
being in each other's company. They were never bored with one another. And when you're a kid, your imagination runs wild on, you know, creating these games that you just never get tired of. And they always had fun doing it. They were each other's best friends. They enjoyed being outside and being in the woods. And they, like I mentioned, they were just enjoyed being with one another. On the morning of March 18th, 1990, it was a Sunday and the whole family went to church as they usually did every week. They were involved with their church and everyone knew everyone. They had a good bond and considered everyone like family. Everyone was hungry after church and the pastor had given the mother, Louise, some money. And the twins, Danette and Jeanette, were going to get some church's chicken, which was about a 15 to 20 minute walk. When they got home, they mentioned to their mother that they had been followed home by a man in a white van. Their mother didn't think anything of it. She told them not to be concerned. It's okay. You're overthinking it. And of course, Louise was concerned that a man is following her children but she had other children to take care of. The twins were home safe and that was all that mattered. And, you know, they just casually mentioned that someone was following them. The family had been living in their current home only for a few months and the twins had to move schools. They attended Lucy Laney High School and this school didn't have a school bus that they that would you know take them to and from school so they had to take the public bus and that would leave them asking their mother for money for the week since it you know the school bus is free their mother told them to go to their godfather whose name is ted and ask him for the bus fare where ted lived was in their old town called bethlehem and it was around 3 p.m and once the twins reached Ted's house, he gave them $20 for the week. And they could, you know, use the rest of the money for snacks throughout the week if they wanted to. After they left the house, they headed to their cousin Juanita's house. And Juanita said that when the twins stopped by, they asked if she could, you know, stay the night with them or if she wanted to stay the night. They had school the next day, so she wasn't allowed to stay the night. So after she told them she couldn't stay, the twins left. After leaving their cousin's house, they stopped at their older sister's house, Asander. And Asander said that when the twins stopped by, they asked if she could walk them home, which was the first time that they had ever asked her that. So it was definitely out of the ordinary because they were pretty independent people. But she had to decline because she had recently given birth. Next, they stopped at a gas station and the clerk named Gloria was familiar with the family. Next, they stopped at the Pumpin' Shop gas station and the clerk named Gloria was familiar with the family. Gloria said that the twins did come into the gas station. They brought candy, chips, and soda, and they, you know, had a conversation. Gloria rung up the next customer waiting, and the twins were gone. And she just assumed that they went home. 
Jeanette was last seen wearing her church clothes, a blue pullover shirt with a white Mickey shirt, a beige skirt, white stockings, and white sneakers. She was about 5'4 and 125 pounds, and Danette was wearing a white Mickey Mouse shirt, white jeans, and black shoes, and she was 5'6 and 130 pounds. Both Jeanette and Danette had pierced ears, and their hair was shoulder length with their jerry curl hairstyle. Both twins had a scar on their belly button from surgery they had as newborns. Luis, the twins' mother, called the police and reported them missing, and police told her that she had to wait 24 hours before reporting an official missing persons report because they were more likely to come back home. After the 24 hours had passed, Luis called again and told them that they're still missing and they need to file a missing persons report. Luis got in contact with Detective Jim Ship, and he stated that the girls were just runaways and they weren't going to look for them. Now, this made me frustrated while researching it, but in the end, we'll talk about my end of episode thoughts. A detective went to the Millbrook house to talk to them. This wasn't right away. They weren't in a hurry to find the missing children, they went to the house days later. The police told them, quote, if they are found and seeing as they're, you know, runaways, they are going to run away again, end quote. So to them, it was a waste of time and he wasn't going to do anything. They handed the case over to a juvenile officer and they didn't do any more than the police officers did. Police never spoke to the last person that the twins saw, such as their cousins, Godfather, and Gloria that worked at the gas station. They didn't care to look around and do some actual investigating. Little is known about the investigation because police just so happened to lose the original police report. So no one has no idea what really happened and it is upsetting. The family as well as members of the church started handing out flyers and retracing their steps, talking to everyone that talked to them and may have seen them on their walk. One year later, on April 8th, 1991, the family was told that no search was going to happen because now Jeanette and Danette were 17 years old, and police said even if they were found, they couldn't force them to come home. With police saying that there was no point in searching for them, they closed the case. Because of the lack of investigation in this case, it causes people to create a lot of theories, and there is more that we'll get into later on in the story, but one of them was that they didn't live in a wealthy area. They lived in a low-income area, so it gave the girls a motive showing that, oh, they can't possibly be happy in this area that they live in, so they ran away. And the other theory makes you raise your eyebrows, and it's because that 
they were black, which, let's be real, some police departments don't even turn their head when a person of color goes missing or is murdered. Again, thoughts on this will be in the end. The girl's case was mentioned once in the news, and that was it. No follow-up. It wasn't on the news every single night. It wasn't, like, everywhere on social media. You know, like, it didn't have you wondering if there were any updates. It was just once. It just kind of went in through one ear, out the other. In 1993, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children got in contact with Luis and what this organization does is help find missing children. When they called Louise, they told her that they were taking both Jeanette and Danette off of their website. And that, that isn't supposed to happen because they're still missing. No one had no idea where they were, and their families are now faced with more problems. From one, the police not doing anything to help find the girls, to this organization taking them off the website. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children told Louise that her children were found and that they were in foster care and now adopted. That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know everything about the foster care system, but it just seems impossible for missing twins to go into the foster care system and get adopted and their family doesn't know. I looked into reasons that children go into the foster care system so that I'm stating facts and not just what I assume. And some of the reasons are abuse, neglect, parents' drug abuse, incarceration, parents' death, or parents' illness. And none of that was present for them to be in the foster care system and to be adopted when their mother is looking for them. Adoption doesn't just happen, you know, because you say the word adoption. Like, people don't run away just because you say the word run away. In 1993, the twins were 19 years old, and in the foster care system, they are considered adults, and they are emancipated from the system. Again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't had experiences with the foster care system, so I'm just trying to trying my best to get the correct information. And then again, every state is different regarding its laws and rules. When my mom was looking into adopting a baby, we talked about it, and my mom wanted to adopt a baby or a smaller child rather than an 18-year-old, or they're less likely to be adopted. Like, of course, they are adopted. They just aren't the number one on the list. So the fact that the twins were 19 at the time in 1993, they were adopted so quickly, that was weird to say the least. The organization was going off of what the detectives told them. So they were taking off the website and not even reported as missing anymore. On January 25, 1993, skeletal remains were found in Iken County, South Carolina, near Shaw Creek off of Highway 191. The remains belonged to a black woman 
and detectives believe she was killed between 1990 and 1992. And seeing as the twins went missing in 1990, it was a possibility that it could have been one of the twins. Looking at the facial reconstruction, it looks a lot like Jeanette. And when the family asked if it was one of the twins, they were told, no, it's not either of them. They weren't given any reason as to why it wasn't one of the twins. Like, did they do some investigating or testing at least to say for sure it's not one of the twins? The family was just told, it's not them, with no further explanation. It was reported that the Jane Doe was stabbed to death and a possibility that she was shot because they found a bullet under her body. And the cause of death could not be determined because she had been burnt. From 1993 to 2013, nothing happened. So 23 years later, in 2013, the case was reopened. The family just needed answers as to what happened to the twins. The same year, the first ever African-American sheriff was elected to Richmond County Sheriff's Department named Richard Roundtree. There was a reward set by the sheriff for anyone that had any information about the case. Sheriff Richard is from Augusta and grew up pretty close to where the twins lived. In the media, he said, quote, We think a terrible injustice has been done for the last 20 years, end quote. And the sheriff talked about this case, you know, hoping that with more technology in 2013, it would be, it would get a bit more attention than it did 20 years ago. And now with a little bit more help, again, with social media, it could, you know, get more recognition. After the sheriff made that statement, it was mentioned only once. And that was it. No one talked about it at all. The family tried to get in contact with the investigators, and it was said that they wanted nothing to do with the family. They told the family that they were looking into possible suspects, but nothing came of that. They mentioned suspects, but no suspects appeared, and no one was questioned. Louise said that she never changed her number just in case the girls called her. Also, many people believed that the twins had been found and they were okay because the police told the public that they had been found. Like, are you serious? You don't properly investigate two children missing, but you want to spread false information by saying that they're found. Wow. Bogus. Shanta, the older sister, said that people were coming up to her asking how the twins were doing, which is crazy because you know that the twins aren't found. The family said that the only way they will believe that the twins are dead is if, if they're shown bodies. In 2017, the sheriff said that he was going to get DNA samples from the Millbrook family and put them in the system to see if any Jane Doe's would pop up, and then they could test it to see if it was a match. You're probably wondering 
if they decided to test the DNA sample from the Millbrook family to the Jane Doe found in 1993. The police never publicly said that they did test the DNA, and there's no information on that. My guess is that they did not. The same year, in 2017, the Fall Line podcast that talks about lesser-known cases in Georgia got this case much more attention. They got in contact with the family, created a timeline, and raised $10,000 to put up a billboard in the area to draw attention to the case. In 2019, Oxygen created a documentary called The Disappearance of the Millbrook Twins. A former federal prosecutor and former homicide detective interviewed Detective Jim Shipp. He didn't want to be on camera. I can only guess why, because he didn't investigate the case. When he was asked if the girls disappeared, when he was asked about the girls' disappearance, he said, quote, Oh yeah, those two runaways, end quote. And he said the reason he called them runaways was because the police department knew of them for getting into trouble a lot. He said he talked to their principal at school, and the principal said that at one point they left school and they wouldn't come back. The principal passed away, so they can never confirm if this was real or not. And I just have a feeling that Detective Jim Ship is lying on a dead person. Because it's easy, because obviously they can't talk for themselves. Detective Ship also admitted that he was the one who called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and told them that the twins had been located. He had been told that the twins were found. He didn't think, oh, let me make sure that they're actually found. How about I lay my eyes on them rather than listening to someone and not seeing them for myself? So because someone told him that the twins were found, he closed the case. He was asked if he think that the twins are still alive, and his response was, quote, I don't know any reason why they wouldn't be, end quote. He also laughed and said, quote, if you find two dead twins, you let me know, end quote. Detective Ship said that he called Louise every week and said that her IQ must have been low if she didn't remember. Because of the lack of investigation, information, or really anything when it comes to this case, it only leaves space for theories as to what could have happened to Jeanette and Danette. The first one is the whole runaway theory. The twins had a great relationship with their mother and siblings. Nothing was alarming where they had to leave their home. Usually, I would think if you're going to run away, you first need a reason to run away. You would need a place to stay, and that cost money. The twins had $20 on them. It's not like they worked where they saved up. They literally had $20 on them. All that they could do with that money was buy snacks and their bus fare. Like, it's just not clicking. 
Danette had a seizure disorder that she would take medication for every single day. She didn't have that with her when she disappeared. There were also rumors that they were pregnant and decided to run away, but they didn't have a boyfriend and they weren't seeing anyone, so you can cross that theory off. The other theory was that it was a serial killer named Joseph Patrick Washington. He was also known as the Shaw Creek Killer. He lived in Augusta and worked at a local brickyard that wasn't far from the twins' house. And to go to work every single day, he would have to pass by the pumpin' shop, and that is the last place that the twins were seen. He was sentenced to 17 consecutive life sentences five years after the twins disappeared. He abducted and sexually assaulted five women and murdered two of them between 1991 and 1993. Three of the women that survived said that they were abducted at gunpoint. One of them allegedly happened at the pump and shop parking lot. He forced them into the car, drove them to a secluded area, and shot them in the stomach and sexually assaulted them. He said that he was doing this because his ex-girlfriend gave him HIV. All of his victims were black women with short hair, which fit the twins' description. He had multiple cars that he owned and would use different cars to get to and from work and even use cars from the brickyard. So today he might be in a black car and might stop at the pump and shop gas station, but tomorrow he might be in a silver car. So no one could exactly say which car he was driving. With serial killers, you, you know, always question whether the number of victims that are confirmed is really that number. Maybe it's lower, maybe it's higher. But Joseph was said to have more victims. He was being tried for the murder of Marilyn Denise Kelly and was facing the death penalty. And he was being looked into as a possible suspect in the murder of Loretta Dukes, but he died in 1999, before the trial started, most likely from AIDS. Many people believe that the Jane Doe that was found in 1993 in Icon County, South Carolina, was Joseph's victim. The Georgia Bureau of Investigations, also known as the GBI, took DNA from Joseph's cars and tested to see if there were any more victims connected to Joseph. And there was no information to the public, at least, to see if, you know, they did test the DNA with the Millbrook family as well. Of course, this lead could have gone somewhere, or this theory could have gone somewhere, but they lollygaggled, and now Joseph's dead. So... Another theory was that it was their father, John Milbrook, who lived around the area and he never took care of the children and their mother left because John was getting more violent. He was constantly hitting her and there was a possibility that he may have done the same if she didn't leave before her kids were in the picture. He was known to be involved with drugs and had a criminal record. He had two of his close friends named Reggie Cummings and Ernest Vaughn. 
He went to prison for helping his two friends hide the body of someone they murdered. The Fall Line podcast wrote a letter to Ernest Vaughn while he was in prison, asking him if he has information as to what happened to the twins. He responded by saying he might know where they could find Jeanette and Danette, and they brought that information to the Richmond County Sheriff's Department. But get this, nothing was ever done with the information that was given to the police. The two people working on the Oxygen documentary, the former prosecutor and former homicide detective, decided they were going to write a letter to Ernest Vaughn. He lets them know that he is willing to talk to them, and they arrange plans at April Vaughn's house, which is Ernest's daughter, and she is going to make the call for them. At the time, Ernest couldn't talk, so April told them what her father told her. She said that she knew they weren't alive. She mentioned that her father knew who did it and where they were buried, and she didn't want to go into any more details. Like, you already laid out what we need to know. Just finish it up. Just give us a who, what, when, where, why, and we just need names and locations. Once they were able to get in contact with Ernest the next day, he said that he was there the night they went missing. Jeanette and Danette went to visit their father, who lived on the third street. And that street was known for selling a lot of crack. Ernest was 12 years old at the time and selling drugs. He said that there were approximately eight to nine men in the house, all drinking alcohol and doing drugs. Ernest said that one of the twins started drinking and smoking weed. Some of the men tried to take advantage of her, and when the other twins saw, she said something. And a lot of men can't simply take a no or rejection or something, you know, someone stopping them. So he hit her, causing her to fall and hit her head on the table. Then someone told everyone to leave. And when it came down to who told everyone to leave, Ernest wouldn't say. Ernest says he didn't know exactly where the bodies were, but he could give them an idea that they were taken to the local brickyard called Mary Brothers Brickyard because that is where they used to hide dead bodies all the time. The former homicide detective asked if he knew anyone that owned a white van at the time when the twins went missing. He gave two names, one named Odelboy and someone named Little Cheese who was Odelboy's nephew. They were at the house the night they went missing, and Little Cheese, quote, had his way with one of the twins. Of course, you know, he doesn't know his real name, and the brickyard that was mentioned by Ernest where the twins could be buried is about 1.5 miles from where they disappeared. The information was then brought to the sheriff, and he sent out police to go and interview Ernest Vaughn. The names Little Cheese and Odle Boy were familiar to police because they were known as drug dealers. Police said that after they talked to Ernest, they could not corroborate his story, and they believe although he was telling this story, he was talking about a different murder that wasn't the twins. And that was it. They never 
investigated any further. April Vaughn, Ernest's daughter, told the people in the Oxygen documentary that he was told to make up the entire story by investigators. Are you frustrated? Because I am. Turns out that Joseph Washington, the first suspect that, not first suspect, the first theory serial killer, possibly, that was in prison, turns out he had ties to John Milbrook, the twins' father. When the twins went missing, John Milbrook showed no type of concern that his daughters were missing. He wasn't interested in talking about it. He wanted nothing to do with the case. He even told his other daughter, Asander, that if the police came to her house and asked about her father to tell them that he was dead. John Milbrook is currently in a nursing home with dementia, so he can't remember anything. 32 years later, there is currently no ongoing investigation, and that is really all that there is about this case. I do not like ending unsolved cases like this because, well, there are no answers. And you're just left staring at the wall, wondering what could have happened. End of episode thoughts? Well, to classify Jeanette and Danette as runaways was the downfall of this case. These officers told the family and told themselves that they were runaways and there is nothing that they can or will to do to bring them back. You know when someone lies so much that they end up believing their own lies? It's like telling yourself that you're sick when you know you aren't sick, but you convince people and yourself that you're sick so you end up becoming sick because you're constantly lying to yourself. It's like this. I find it weird that the father ended up getting dementia. Not to say that people don't get dementia. I think that they should go to him and say the twin's name, see his reaction, and explain the event that, like, Ernest mentioned. Because at first, he wanted nothing to do with them going missing, to Ernest telling that story of something happening that night to the twins at his house, to getting dementia. The only thing we need is your memory, and you just so happen to lose that. The first detective that classified the girls as runaways, let's be real, is an asshole. Because how do you tell a mother that her daughters are runaways and that you're not going to look for them because it's a waste of time and not even turn your head and acknowledge that they are missing and to do some actual investigating. The other sheriff that did, did acknowledge that this case was an injustice and that they would look into the case again, all of a sudden he didn't want to investigate any more leads. No one wants to investigate this case and it's fishy. It's, it, it's suspicious. I believe that Ernest was telling the truth even though he was 12 years old at the time. It's very detailed. Kids are smart, and they see and they observe things as much as people think that because they're young, they don't know anything. I think that 
when police heard the story, they thought, oh, that possibly could be a lead, but let's not acknowledge it. And let's tell everyone that he just got his story confused. I think that with the twins being black in a low-income area in Georgia, that could be a reason why this case was simply never solved because of what they look like, which is crazy that someone won't do their job the right way because maybe they see someone as less. I live in Georgia, and I've never heard of this case before. Whenever I go to South Georgia, like every couple of months, I see Confederate flags, which definitely lets me know where I'm at, and it gives me an eerie feeling. I've gone into gas stations and restaurants with other people, and I've literally seen people shake their heads because of the people I'm with. And I've seen the difference when I go into a place with different people. This doesn't happen all the time, because everyone is not a racist, but there are still a lot of people that are stuck in 1812. And lastly, police corruption. It's a big thing. So many police departments have been exposed for being corrupt. Not every police officer is corrupt. There are some that do their job and treat people equal, and I want to say thank you for that. And then there are some that are just corrupt and bad people. These are 15-year-old children, and the second they turn 18, 19 years old, they're not classified is missing anymore? Like, are you serious? Everyone deserves a chance. Every family deserves justice. No matter your age, the color of your skin, or your socioeconomic background, everyone deserves a chance. Because every case can be solved. If people put aside what people look like and where they're from, you can give families the justice they deserve. There's also a fundraiser I will have in the description box below created by the Fall Line podcast to be able to keep the billboard up and raise more awareness. It's called the Millbrook Twins Billboard on GoFundMe and it's by Laura Norton. And that is the end of today's story. I would love to know what you guys think. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned for next week's episode that comes out every Thursday. You can follow my Instagram at criminalcuriositypod where you can see the pictures of the case. This podcast is available on all podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. If you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review and rating because it helps me out so much. Spotify now has ratings, so all you have to do is type in Criminal Curiosity and you'll see a little star to leave a rating. It would be very helpful and much appreciated. You can also request any cases that you have through Instagram or Gmail, which I will have in the description box. And please be safe out there. Look out for one another. Until next time. Bye, everyone.